Let us take out God's word and hear about one of these sinners whom God rescued, saved. Psalm 51. It's right in the middle of the Bible. It's right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 51. As you're turning there, I'll read the superscription. It's rather painful. It is a psalm written for the director of music. So, Jeremy, maybe this was written specifically for you. What do you think? Oh, we know it. should add the preacher there. It's a psalm of David. And it was written when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This song that Jeremy and the, and the group did for us is a song written by a, a friend of mine uh, when I was a, a president at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I was doing a series of messages about the people that were blessed by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And they were all this kind of person. And then that clear message that the physician comes not to heal those who think they're well, but for the sick. And Jesus saying, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And I will tell you openly, I'm among them. One of those lost, messed up people who's been found by Jesus and is being remade. And that's what we're going to think about. So let us stand and hear this, the word of our Father. Psalm 51, beginning with verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. So cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. I don't have 
a good message for perfect people this morning. So if you're one of those, you may just want to listen to what I say to everyone else. Uh, we're, we're in a series of messages, visitors, that I call songs of experience, human experience. And I'm going to be talking about two related human experiences today. A guilt and forgiveness. A guilt and forgiveness. Now, I'm guessing, just looking around at 11 o'clock attenders, you like one of those more than the other. Am, am I right? Guilt and forgiveness. And yet, I'll tell you, we're not going to rejoice in the forgiveness of God until we acknowledge the guilt that is real. I'm not going to be simply talking about feelings that we have, because there is such a thing, as I'll be pointing out, as, as false guilt. Perfectionists, you know what that is, right? Times when you feel guilty for something you just haven't sort of achieved what you want to be, or, or those who have been in legalistic settings, you can never live up to what everybody else said. I am talking about something, a standing we have before God. And I'll tell you, there is no song ever written that talks about this more powerfully, more graphically, more clearly than Psalm 51. Even people who never go to church know the setting of the psalm. It's when David, the king of Israel, committed this terrible sin with a, a woman named Bathsheba. It's recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And if you take time after the service or sometime this week to read that, you'll see that, that story. It's a painful one. But I'm going to be telling us, I think it's one that we can all relate to. Uh, the very first verse, it, it tells us that it was springtime. And if any of you ever read romance novels, which are not my favorites, uh, I, will, I need to admit to you. I, I need, the, almost all of them through history, and they've, been, they've always been written, they almost always take place in the spring of the year. I don't know why. People say that that's when men's hearts turn and turn and often turn in the wrong direction. And in 2 Samuel 11, we're told that it was a time when the king, who in ancient Israel was also the, truly the commander-in-chief, should have been with his colleagues at war. But he wasn't. And I, I am sure that... Um, Everybody could make excuses for him. Oh, David, you've worked so hard. You need this, this vacation. But I'll tell you this, something that most of us who've lived a while have learned, that when we think we need that leisure time, it's often in that leisure time when we should be doing something else, that instead of turning to God or doing what is right, we turn away from God and do what is wrong. Springtime, leisure time, and the other one I had to just own up to. He was probably middle-aged. Um, men, I'm, I'm told that's a dangerous time for us. Who would ever want to admit it? But I'll tell you, the whole point as you start the story is that this was a dangerous time for David. And sadly, he gave in to that moral danger. You know the story. In that leisure time, he was out on the top of his palace. He saw the beautiful woman Bathsheba. And instead of turning away, he called her in. He had, his lust gave in to adultery. He engaged in it. She became pregnant. We all know the awfulness of that. We can understand giving in to temptation. I think for many of us, the hardest part about reading that story is how long he tried to cover it up. Act as if nothing had happened. Showing up in the worship place. And then when the pregnancy became known, when the pregnancy became known, he tried to trump up some way to keep covering that up. He calls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, home from the military workplace. But Uriah was a man of principle. 
And if his colleagues were going to be out there having to fight the battles, he wasn't going to be with his beautiful wife. So he stayed outside. He wouldn't even go in. And so David's attempt to cover up the fact that uh, that he had been engaged in adultery with Uriah's wife was foiled. So he had to do something awful. He trumped up this strategy to put Uriah at the front of the battle where he surely would be killed. And he was. It was a murder. And I'll tell you, those of us who've lived for a while, it's something we understand. That we engage in one sin and we think that's an isolated thing. But it always has these tentacles that reach out into other things, right? And so for David, it was uh, lust that led to adultery. Adultery led to that awful lying and deceit. And the deceit eventually led to murder. It just shows us what we all know. That when there are things in our lives that we don't deal with and stop them immediately and bring them to God, they keep escalating and, and growing in our lives. And that had happened with David. But for a while, he thought he'd gotten away with it. You know, I can just imagine showing up uh, in, in the worship place, standing up in front of his people. Everybody thought, what a good king uh, this David is. But inside, there was this leprosy eating away at his moral fiber. Until one day, I guess a day like any other, he sort of uh, had a, a friend, the local preacher, uh, Nathan, show up at his house. And uh, Nathan tells him a story. Uh, about a, a powerful man who had many cattle, many sheep, stealing the one prized sheep of another very poor man. What should I do, David? Oh, he has to be dealt with, David says. He is indignant about it. And, which, and to, at that time, Nathan turns to him. And in those powerful words of Scripture, he says, David, you are that man. You know, to me it rings true... To so much of my life. One day begins like any other day. And, and it could happen. And I do pray that this happens when we come to Lake Avenue Church. I know I want people to feel good. But sometimes we need to, to, to own what is going on in our lives. We come in. There are things we've been trying to cover up. Hide from ourselves and from others. We just are denying what is true about us. When it's as if the message is directed specifically to us. Have you ever experienced it? Or God sends somebody across our path who says something. It's as if that is a message that is directed specifically to me. We need to hear it. And what happened to David is what happens to all people who still have a conscience. He is, he is overwhelmed. And he wonders what God will do. Perhaps he's been singing the kinds of songs that Jeremy planned for us. Singing about the holiness of God. And then he looks at himself and he knows he is not. The righteousness of God. And he looks at himself and he knows there are all sorts of things about him that are not right. I think one of the most amazing things about the Bible is this. That it records these sorts of episodes about its great heroes. Do you know that that happens in almost no other religion? Why does it do that? I mean, you know, King David, apart from Jesus himself, may have been the person in the Bible who was the closest to the heart of God of any human being. I mean, in the New Testament, God would have himself would have an evaluation of David. He would say that David was a man after my own heart. And yet it tells us this about him. Why is it there? So, some people would criticize this. Why does it have to tell these stories about its people? It gives us no hope. Well, I'll tell you this. It, it's not there so that you and I can sort of gloat and say, well, I couldn't do anything as bad as David. I'm not that bad. It's not there for that reason. What do you think? I'll tell you, I think it's there for the very reason why I, I pray I'll be able to communicate this today. That you and I would look inside of ourselves and see that we are among those lost who need to be found. 
among those messed up who need to be made. We will look at David and see how he started his path back to God. And that we will hear the message from God himself. That his grace is greater than our sin. Grace, unearned gift, comes out of the being of God, who God is. That that grace of God ready to receive you and to welcome you and to forgive you and to remake you is greater than any sin. This, I'm just telling you, is the reason why you've shown up at church other than those who are just forced to come. We've come because this is at the heart of the Christian faith. That we've owned the fact that we've fallen short and yet God loves us anyway. That it's while you and I were sinners that Christ died for us. The reason why the Christian church has grown throughout the entire world for these centuries is that people have heard this message, have trusted the Christ who established it, and have found a new life in Him. Isn't that true? That's what we've come to sing about today. And so what we want to do, and I don't have nearly as much time as I would like, so I'll, as always, try to speak real fast, and you listen just as fast. And we'll just try to see this path that David writes about. Because what we have is a song about this experience. And it is a beautifully written one. Uh, three stanzas. Uh, stanza 1 is verses 1 through 6. Uh, stanza 2 is verses 7 through 12. Stanza 3 is verses 13 to 18. And then he tags on something at the end simply to make sure that, pray that God would not use his sin to do damage to all of his people. Now what I want us to see is the path that David took from guilt to renewal. It started, stanza one, with what I'm calling an inward look. He looked inside of himself. That's verses one through six. They are painful verses to read. Uh, Look at verse three, just as one of the places to see. Uh, God, I know my transgressions. And I'm going to own this. My sin is always before me. Now listen to me. There is a principle here that, that, that we just have to grasp. That according to the whole of the Bible, not, not just Psalm 51, but according to the whole of the Bible, the path toward forgiveness and renewal always begins with confession. Will you mark that down? It always begins with confession. And you know what confession demands? A time for that ruthless self-examination to happen. And a time of just brutal honesty with ourselves and before God. And we have to just bring that to him. So it starts with this inward look. And that's what David does for these six verses. Um, I've thought about Oliver Cromwell when he was having a portrait painted at the end of his life. And at that period of time... For their great leaders, they were trying to make them look the best they'd ever looked and probably better than they'd ever looked. And he was asked by the painter, do you want me to get rid of all the bad parts, the flaws? And and, and it's been passed on. So you know what Cromwell said? No, paint me as I am, warts and all. And that's what we have to see. Look inside of ourselves and see those warts about us. And that's what happens when the word of God comes and the spirit of God speaks to us. Our consciences are troubled, as David's was. He was flooded with those emotions. I've done wrong. What I've done wrong is always in front of me. And our natural human tendency, and I think here in the 21st century in Southern California, we have more of a tendency than others to try to brush away the flaws, right? Cosmetic surgery is really big around here. And so we don't want anybody to see any of our flaws. And sometimes we want to ignore them ourselves. But we need to look at them. And the reason is this. 
that in the eyes of God, there is something called guilt that is real. Now, are you with me? Over my many years of living, praying, and pastoring, I know that there is something that I'm now calling false guilt. There are so many of us who come to church and we, we feel this weight, this shame uh, for, for things we should never feel. Uh, perfectionists. Sometimes we just can't live up to our own standards. We can never quite be perfect. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes when we've grown up in very legalistic settings, people have set up standards that we can't find anywhere in the Bible and just keep making us feel guilty. That's not what I'm talking about. In those kind of things, we need to simply hear God say, I love you. That, that, that's not the, the message that the church is to communicate. But at the same time, though I want to deny the reality of that false guilt, I want to point out that there is something that the Bible talks about that is real. And that is that when we look at the standards of God, we're made in his image, you know. And God's word tells us how we are to live. And then we see that we have intentionally not done what God would have us to do or sometimes try to act as if it's not so intentional. We simply know that we have fallen short of God's standards, that what we are is guilty. And it's because we have fallen short of what God has made us to be. That's what real guilt is. It's, it's a rebellion against, it's a falling short of what God has created to be. Uh, and that's what makes sense out of verse 4, which for some people, is, they can't understand this. The way my version translates it, God, it's against you, you only have I sinned. I really think in our language, a better way of translating that would be preeminently, ultimately, the first thing God is, that I know that I've sinned against you. I've broken your standards. I've broken the very way that you would have me to live. Of course, he had also sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and his entire nation. But it had all started because he would got his own way rather than, than God's way. And when he broke that, he hurt himself. He hurt his relationship with God. And it did do damage to everyone around him. And in fact, the three words that you find in those opening verses that are translated different kinds of sins all deal with that. Do you have your Bible in front of you? Um, in verse 2. No, verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. You know, David was writing this poetry in Hebrew. And that word translated transgressions is a word for rebellion. Uh, you know what? Have you ever felt this? A time when you're feeling a temptation and you know this is right. You, you know it. And yet you make a choice to go this way. Your way rather than God's. I would ask people to vote to see if anybody's ever engaged in that. But I already know it should be unanimous. It's rebellion against the way God has made you to live. And a similar thing happens in the word that's translated iniquity in my version. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity. The word there in Hebrew is a word for being bent or crooked. Um, it means that there's a way God would have us to live, created us to be. Then when we see ourselves, it's not quite the way we're supposed to be. It's like if you've ever tried to fix something in your house and you need a straight nail and the only nails you have are, are bent and crooked and you try to get that somehow to work, but it doesn't work because it needs to be straight. That's true of us. I think I made that point when I was as a boy and I bought this awful gift for my brother. I really bought it for myself and acted as if it was a gift for my brother. I, I, I went up to my room and I said, what's wrong with me? There's something about me that's not 
the way God made it to be. And David is owning that same thing. He says, Father, as far back as I can look, that's the way I've been. It's just a pattern of my life. When we see ourselves in the light of the holy God, we see that we're not what we should be. We've, we've fallen short. Or, or the third word that you find in verse 2 also, cleanse me from my sin, is that we fall short of a mark, of a, of a standard. Uh, the New Testament would put we fall short of the glory of God. God has, has made us to live a glorious life that, that reflects His love and compassion and grace to the world, but we fall short of that. And that's what happened to David that day that the, that the word was open to him. He says, Father, it's against you that I have sinned. And I must start by looking inside and owning that. You see that in this path to forgiveness, uh, Bathsheba could have said, Oh, David, it's not such a bad thing. People have done worse things. Just forget it. Or Uriah's relatives could have said, Oh, you know, we knew him well. He wasn't all that great a person. He got on our nerves. Family gatherings are better. David, just forget about it. They could have said that, couldn't they? Or he could have gone to the therapist and said, Oh, David, you just got to forgive yourself. You've just fallen short of your own standards. But that isn't sufficient, is it? Because the real thing is that David was made in the image of God, and, and he wasn't living the way God had made him to live. And he'd done damage to other people made in the image of God. God is against you that I have sinned. So, Father, I need to come to you and ask you to forgive my transgressions and to blot out my sins. And today, I, I want to tell you, this is where it starts, with that inward look. And I want to ask you, in the name of the Scriptures, to allow God's Word to speak to you and to look inside today and if you were writing a psalm right now to God saying, Father, these are areas of my life that need to be right before you, where would you start? Perhaps you even want to begin writing that now. It begins with an inward look. And what we see isn't very pretty. But that's not the end of the story, is it? All right. Stands in number two. Let's get to that one fast, right, Jeremy? I call it an upward look. An upward look. He's looked at himself and now he looks up to God and look what he says in verse 7. God, cleanse me. And if you do, I know I will be clean. Lord, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. All right. Guilt for a follower of Jesus needs to be acknowledged. But we don't wallow in it. We don't just stay there. You know, if we keep just looking inside of ourselves and seeing how awful we are, it becomes this awful downward spiral like a cancer. It just eats us alive. Once we have acknowledged it and allowed the, the truth of the Spirit of God to shine into our heart, then with that we have to turn to God and to find out what he's going to be like. Kind of like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He stands in front of a holy God. stands in front of a holy God and he says, Oh, I am a sinner and I live among a whole group of sinners. And now I'm standing in front of the Holy God. I'm going to be destroyed. He turns to God. And instead of finding destruction, he finds life. And that's what David finds. So he goes to an upward look. Now, there's so much I want to say, but I'm only, only going to say two. I want you to notice first the big thing that David asks for. Having acknowledged the sin, what does he need? And two words express it. Cleansing and renewal. Cleansing. The things he'd done in the past, he wants them to be blotted out and, and washed away. 
removed from the sight of God. And then number two, as he leaves that place, he wants his life to be different. Renewal, a new beginning. Uh, Verse 7, cleansing. Cleanse me with hyssop. Uh, Hyssop would be used by a priest in ancient Israel. When a person had been found to have leprosy, they'd be excluded. They couldn't come into the community. And then when they were healed, when they were rescued, they would come, show themselves to the priest, look, I'm okay. And he would use hyssop and declare that they were ripe. And they could go back home. It was a great thing. And you see what David is saying. I've looked inside of myself and it feels like a leprosy, a cancer eating away inside. Lord, I need that to be washed away. I need that to be blotted out. Will you forgive what I have done in the past? It's a big thing that he's asking for. Cleansing from the past, but it's not just that. He's wanting the future also to be different, and that's what you find in verse 10. And then, Father, create in me a pure heart, because mine isn't, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You see, David had looked back over his life and seen what you and I can see. Verse 5, I was sinful at birth. When I came out of the womb, it seemed like I was sinning right there. And I know you desire my life to be different. You come into church and and the preacher preaches a sermon. I'm, I'm sure this isn't the first sermon about guilt and forgiveness you've ever heard. And you say, but I have brought those matters to God before. And then I go back home and I thought I've turned over a new leaf and the old leaf is there. Um then this prayer should be yours. Cleanse me from the past, and I will be clean. And then, Father, you know what I need. A steadfast spirit that tomorrow will be different from yesterday. Now, this cleansing and renewal, these are big things. It's not easy, is it? It's going to take the power of God to do it. And it means we have to believe certain things about God. We must believe that he is able to forgive and make us different. Do you believe that? Is God able to do it? And then second, we have to believe that he is willing to do it. And that brings us to the second thing David asks, that does that I want you to see in this upward look. The faith and the confidence with which he asks. Look at verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop, God, then I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I want to be, have a, a new spirit. And then when he gets to the third stanza in verse 13, he begins with then. It's going to happen. How is he so sure that God would forgive and make new? It's because of what he believed about God. In verses 1 and 2, that God is a God who acts according to his unfailing love. Do you see it? And according to his great compassion. Takes us all the way back to those Ten Commandments that we studied. Moses turned to God and says, you know me, I don't know you. What do you like? And God says, I'll show you what I'm like. He passed in front of him and he declared, the Lord, the Lord, that's who I am. The compassionate and loving God, forgiving sins. David, knowing this, on one side, there's almost a tension in it, owned the seriousness of his sins, but was able to rejoice and have confidence in the goodness and power of his God. So that's the second part of this step toward renewal, is that we own what is wrong and we bring it to the right place. And that I will pray what, that you will hear what I know that David heard. Your sins I will remember no more. Which brings us to the third stanza. What happens when we have heard that? We've had this inward look and what we've seen inside ourselves wasn't all that great. 
Then we've had this upward look and we have found a gracious and loving God ready to forgive. In fact, we know that far better than David because we live on this side of the cross. We know the greatest act of love in history, that God loved us so much that he sent his son who loved us so much that he gave his life so that this sin could be washed away and that the spirit of God could be given to us and our lives could be different. So what happens when that takes place? We look inside and see the evil. We look up and see the love of God. I'll tell you, our hearts are broken. We should be so thankful. And that's what we find at the very end. Verses 16 and 17. God, I know that what you delight in is just not sacrifice. It's not just showing up and doing what you're supposed to do in church. Or or I bring that. And, And the pleasure that you have is not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are this broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. I know that's true. I know you will welcome me back in. So what happens? You look in. The seed of bentness, you look up and see he's ready to make you right. What do you feel like? I tell you, we should feel like singing. We should be so thankful uh, to God. In fact, the the two things that we find is David saying, this is what I have to do. Um, My tongue has to be full of praise to God. Verse 14, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Or in verse 15, my mouth is just going to have to declare your praise Because you've seen me as I am and you love me anyway. You know what I've done and you brought me back anyway. Thank you. Hallelujah, Lord. That's what should happen. That's why, brothers and sisters, whenever we gather here and we remember this, the gospel, this good news, the singing in this church should be unbelievable. Now, I've been a pastor a long time and I've been a Christian a long time and I've heard all the complaints and I've probably complained as much as anybody else. Sometimes the complaint is, you know, that isn't the style of music that I want to sing to. Can you imagine David saying this after being so thankful to God and he comes into the worship service? Well, that's not the kind of music I like. I'm not going to sing. I I, I know the complaints that that the music or whatever it is, is is dull. It's not what I have on my iPod. It's not the thing I buy tickets for. But you know where the real dullness is? If we feel like these songs are dull, it's in our hearts. It's in our hearts. If we're grateful for what God has done, we can't even believe we, he lets us sing songs to him. We almost are going to look sheepishly around us and to the fellow family members. We're going to say, if you knew everything about me, you wouldn't want me to join this song with you. Of course, they're going to be saying the same thing back to you. Just, just, just know that. That's the nature of a whole group of mercy needing people coming together and finding the mercy of God. The first thing that has to happen is we're just grateful. We're just grateful and that gratitude is just going to explode in praise and thanks to God. And then the second thing that's going to happen is we can't keep it to ourselves. Which verse is that? Father, when I experience this, I will teach other transgressors your ways and not with a haughty, proud spirit. But as one who's been welcomed in spite of ourselves, we go out from this place and we have people who cross our paths going through such tough times. Sometimes they've brought those tough times on themselves. They've sinned, been unfaithful to people in their families, the same kind of things David did, the same kind of things we've engaged in. And we turn to them and say, do I have a message for you? Tomorrow can be different. I will teach others who fall short your ways. And in fact, Father, the one who saves me, I know you are ready to save them. I found so many Christians 
who claim to be Christians who still say that they cannot forgive other people because you don't know what they did to me, Pastor. Well, I do know that what they did often is very, very serious. But let me tell you, when you and I have experienced the forgiveness and the grace of God, we are able to extend to others the forgiveness of God. For the blood of Christ is sufficient for our sins. Hallelujah. And it is sufficient for theirs as well. This is the David who made it all the way from the place where he was afraid to be in the presence of God into the place where he sang the glory of God and called others to trust in the God who saves. And I pray that the same will be true of us today.